Good morning. Good morning. A pleasure to be with you here on the, on the first Sunday of Lent. And, and as we enter the season of Lent, as you can see up on the, on the screen here, we're, we're beginning a new sermon series, uh, and it's called The Art of Living by Faith. Uh, now, if you remember, our, our last sermon series that we just finished up last Sunday uh, was called We Believe. And, and at the center of that message was really examining uh, the different things that are at the center and, and the core of our faith that we confess in the words of the Nicene Creed. And I'd like to think uh, that this series really kind of goes hand in hand with that last series. Uh, in the last series, as we took a look at those articles of faith that we confess. Here now we kind of turn and shift and ask, now what does that life of faith look like? What does it look like to confess these words, not only with our mouths, but also with our lives? Now one of the things that, that we often uh, talk about in, in terms of the season of Lent is, is that the season of Lent is a season of, of repentance and, and self-reflection. And I think sometimes what we mean by that is, is that the season of Lent is just sort of about kind of wallowing in our guilt and feeling extra bad about how sinful we are. But if, if that's what we stop with, I think we've missed the point of repentance. Because actually in, in one of our, our, our confessions of faith, in the Augsburg Confession, Article 12 of that says very plainly that repentance has two parts. That repentance is not just about feeling really, really guilty for your sin. Repentance actually has two parts, contrition and faith. That contrition is that, that sorrow over our sin, that, that feeling of guilt, the, the, the terror of our conscience, the, the recognition that as we look in the mirror of God's law that we don't measure up, that, that we don't meet the standard, that we miss the mark, and that we have no business trying to stand before God. But that's only the first part. The second part of repentance is faith. Faith is actually believing in God's promises, believing that on account of Christ our sins are forgiven, believing that we actually are called the children of God because of the promises that He's made to us in His Son. A true repentance is contrition and faith. One of the ways that, uh, that that very article in the Augsburg Confession talks about this faith, it says that faith believes that sins are forgiven on account of Christ, consoles the conscience, and liberates it from terrors. So, so if you find your, your conscience burdened and terrified, then we actually haven't reached repentance yet. That, that true repentance is, is not just the terrified conscience, it's the alleviation of that terror. So if the season of Lent is about repentance, it's not just about wallowing in guilt or, or embracing some kind of false humility. That the season of Lent is about reflecting on those sins and the faith that believes that even in spite of that, we are people who, who are forgiven and set free. That we are rightly called the children of God because of faith in Jesus Christ. And so we seek to, to take a look at, at what it means to, to actually live by faith. What it means to actually put our trust in this. Not just with our heads, but also with our hearts. Now one of the things that I believe is, is at the, the core of, of our Christian faith 
is, is this term and, and this idea of, of righteousness. Uh, righteousness may not be a, a word that's regularly in your vocabulary unless you're a surfer. took a little time. So. Uh, but I do believe that, that the term righteousness and the idea of righteousness is, is something that is very important for a Christian. The word righteousness is, is packed with meaning for Christians. Uh, really, one of the ways that, that is helpful for me of thinking about what righteousness is, is thinking of it in terms of, of a relationship. That to be righteous is to be in a right relationship with someone or something. So, so for the Christian, when we talk about righteousness, we're talking about what does it mean to be in a right relationship with God. But I don't think we can just limit righteousness solely in terms of our relationship with God. In fact, one of the things that I believe is that Christian or unchristian, religious or non-religious, everyone is looking for righteousness. Everyone is looking to meet a standard to be in a right relationship with, with either a, a God of some sort or, 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 a, or a system of some kind. Everyone, every single human being is looking to be seen as righteous in somebody's eyes. It doesn't matter if you're, you're Christian or, or Hindu or Muslim or Buddhist or atheist or agnostic. Everyone is looking for righteousness. That, think about it this way. Uh, men, particularly, when, when you do things like remember your anniversary and, and buy gifts on, on anniversaries and, and birthdays and, and remember those things, or, or when you're in the doghouse and, and you come home with, with flowers, what you're looking for is righteousness. You're looking for, for marital righteousness. You're looking... To be righteous in the eyes of your spouse. Or, or, or when, you, when you go to work early and, and you stay late and, and you take on extra projects because there's a new promotion possibly in your future. What you're looking for is righteousness in the eyes of your employer. Well, when we post pictures of ourselves on, on Instagram and, and are advertising the pleasant parts of our life to, to our family and friends, what we're looking for is righteousness. Or, or when we post political statuses on, on Facebook trying to prove to the world how, how woke we are, what we're looking for is righteousness. And, and I learned that, that woke is a term that people my age use for being politically aware, and I didn't know that. And I realized that in my effort to be cool and hip, I was looking for righteousness and failing. <laughs> but, but all joking aside, I believe that everything that we do from, from the clothes that we wear and, and the ways that we spend our time and our money, what we're looking for is righteousness. And, and I believe that one of the things that, that shapes our righteousness and what we look to for righteousness is, is the stories that we tell about ourselves. See, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to look to be seen as, as righteous in the eyes of those around you. I think actually scripture calls us to do just that. 
that, that we should be well thought of by outsiders, that, that we should live in such a way that people can bring no accusation against us as Christians. But, but our stories, the stories that we tell, shape the ways that we look to righteousness, where we ultimately look to find the most meaning, the most purpose, the, that, that ultimate sense of righteousness. Uh, for example, one of the things that, that most people in the room share, not, not necessarily everyone, is, is that we are Americans, or at least all in America at this very moment in time. Think about the, the, the stories that we tell uh, as a country that, that sort of shape our self-understanding. Uh, the way that we tell our history and, and our, our fight for independence and, and catchphrases like no taxation without representation and inalienable rights. Think about how the stories that we tell as a country safe shape our self-perception, shape our self-understanding, and shape the things that we value and look to for righteousness. The the way that these stories that we tell and and seeing our country as this beacon of freedom in the world can shape these ideas of of American exceptionalism. That that can shape us to think that the greatest goods in life are, are freely expressing one's personal liberties. Uh, how it shapes our, our, our political understanding, how, how it shapes the way we operate and behave and the things that we love. That, that to be righteous as an American is, is to just freely express your own desires, your own norms, whatever you decide is right. That when we're doing that, what we're looking for is, is we're looking for a sense of righteousness. And what we as the church should ask ourselves is, is what stories do we tell that shape our righteousness as God's people? And, and one of the things that I think we should look to is, is actually one of the places where this story of God's salvation begins to work itself out in history. Although the scriptures start 11 chapters before where we really see this plan and promise that God makes to Adam and Eve start taking flesh is in the call of Abram. Rome, or Genesis chapter 12, uh, we, we recount this story of, of God calling Abram, who will, uh, he'll later change his name to Abraham uh, as sort of this teaching tool that, that you were once this exalted father, but now you're going to be this, this father of, of many nations. And so the call of Abraham takes place in this way. Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land That I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord told him. Now, as you hear these words read, or as you saw them on the screen earlier before, Whose activity, whose actions seem to be at the center of this call? Is it God's actions or is it Abram's? Now, now certainly there, there's a call to, to go. And we see later that Abram does go. 
But again and again and again, what we see emphasized in this text is not Abram's virtue, not Abram's actions or or righteous deeds, but God's promises. Go to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who dishonor you. Again and again, what we see emphasized here is not Abram's actions, not, not his goodness, not, not his display of righteousness, but God's promises. And we see this happen again later. So Abram goes, he, he picks up, he leaves his home country, and then he arrives at this new land and he sees that it's inhabited by the people of Canaan, the Canaanites. Certainly he might say, okay, God sent me here, it's occupied I don't know how this is all going to work out. Then verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So first God makes these promises to Abram. And Abram goes as God says. Then God makes another promise. If you actually total them up, there's seven promises here in this text. And Abram responds in in worship, building an altar to the Lord. You you see, there's sort of this pattern that we see in Abram's call in Genesis. That that God makes these promises and Abram then responds to God's promises with faith. That is what makes Abram's actions pleasing in God's sight. It's that he responds in faith, that these are deeds done in in faith, that God makes him promises and Abram believes them. There's nothing in the text or, or before this call that, that identify Abram as sort of this virtuous character, that he was so good or, or pleasing in God's sight that God called him. What Abram is highlighted throughout the book of Genesis as is a man of faith, a guy, a guy who hears God's promises and believes those promises, who puts his trust in his promises and who lives in accord with that trust. What makes Abram as as someone for us to look to is not his goodness, but his faith. And, And this is precisely what Paul picks up on later in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 4, And there's this debate that has broken out in the early church as as now it's not just the Jewish people who are seen as God's people, but Jews and Gentiles are coming to the Christian faith. And so there's this question of of do, do Gentile Christians have to obey the Old Testament law or not? And particularly, do they have to be circumcised or not? And what does Paul point to as the foundation for their righteousness? Is Abram particularly the faith of Abram. Romans chapter 4, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law, or if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith 
of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Paul's saying, before God ever gave Moses the law, before God even gave the covenant of circumcision to Abraham, there was a promise. A promise that through Abraham and his offspring, the entire world would be blessed. And Abraham cling, he clung to that promise in faith. And so Paul is saying that no, salvation, righteousness, it all depends not on works of the law, but it depends on faith. That to be seen right in the eyes of God, to be in a right relationship with Him, it is not about obedience to a law. It is not about good works, but it is about faith. It is about putting your trust in Him and the promises that He makes to you. And that's exactly what Paul continues with later in that same text. He says that this wasn't just true for Abraham, it's true for you too. He says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why, it, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You will be counted righteous, not because of the good deeds you pile up, not because of, of the amount of, of worth that you can prove, but you will be counted righteous because of the one who fulfills the promise that God made to Abraham. You will be counted righteous on account of Jesus. It's because of Him who, who was delivered up for our sins and, and raised for our justification that we get to be counted righteous in the sight of God. His perfect relationship with the Father becomes your perfect relationship with the Father. But that's where we can find our ultimate righteousness. Not in the things that we do, but in Jesus. In Jesus alone. And here's, here's why I think this matters. Because every other thing that we look to for righteousness will demand that we find it because of what we do. Every other thing that we look to for righteousness will demand it in accord with what we do. It will be a righteousness according to our works. Righteousness in the workplace is performance-based. That's just sort of reality. That righteousness, according to one's intelligence or intellectual ability, is according to what you know and being able to prove what, that you know more than the next person. And, and the kind of the double-edged sword with that one is if you spend too much time trying to prove what you know, people just sort of think you're a jerk. But righteousness, according to every other religion, every other philosophy, is according to what we do. Religion, according to Islam, is being able to follow the five pillars. Religion, according to Buddhism, is being able to detach ourselves from worldly desires. Every religion, every philosophy says, do this and you will be seen as righteous. And the fact of the matter is that no matter... No matter what we do, 
But we're going to be led to probably one of two paths. Either it's going to be exhaustion and despair because we've never done enough. Or it's going to be an arrogant, prideful self-righteousness saying, oh, everyone, look what I've done. It's only in the gospel are we called to come and find rest because our righteousness is not something that we do. Our righteousness is something that has been given to us. Freely given through the cross of Jesus. We get to be called righteous. Every religion, every philosophy will say, do this, you'll be righteous. Only Jesus says, look to me. Put your trust in me. Come, believe in me. I have made you righteous. I have restored your relationship to the Father. May the season of Lent be for us. A season of learning what it means to live by this faith. That calls us righteous. Not because of works, not because of obedience to the law, but because of faith in Jesus. During this season of Lent, may we, may we learn to, to, to identify those things that we look to for righteousness. And, and set them aside and, and learn that it's Jesus and Jesus alone who makes us righteous. May we learn to, to fixate less on, on ourselves and, and the things that we do or haven't done or ought to do. And fixate solely on the promises that God has made us. The promises first made through Abraham, made to Abraham and fulfilled in Jesus. And may we learn that by faith, we are called righteous on account of Christ. Amen?